Welcome to the Born to Write podcast, dedicated to writers, authors, and the art of storytelling. Go behind the scenes where writers reveal their ups and downs and how they finally shared their stories with the world. Now, here is your host, Azul Tarones. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Born to Write. I'm so glad to be here with my dear friend, Margaret Maloney's here. She's the author of Carpooling with Death, How Living with Death Will Make You Stronger, Wiser, and Fearless. Margaret, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, I'm really glad. You know what really struck me when you came to me with this idea of writing about death was that you genuinely were excited about it, which was first like, hmm, this is interesting. I'm not sure what to expect. But the more I got into the book with you, the more I learned how powerful this conversation with death was. So what prompted you to want to write a book about your experience with death? (laughs) Well, thank you. And also, let me just say thank you. I appreciate your enthusiasm. Because when I first came to you, I was very new with the idea. And so I knew what I wanted, but I was kind of nervous about it. And so I'm so happy you were receptive or else I might not have ever done it. And what prompted me to do it was I got to a point in life where I just began to realize that and not in a bad way, just how it is, the death was going to come. And I literally had this idea for a few years before I was willing to do something about it. Like I kept thinking, I want to write about this. I want to write about this. And to be even more specific, it was because when I first came up with the idea, it was because I was beginning to realize that the people close to me were going to start dying. And then by the time I actually wrote it, it was because the people close to me had died. And I realized by going through that process that we don't talk about death a lot in our culture. In fact, we kind of try to hide it. And it means that when you go through it, and we're all going to go through this, unless you're the absolute first one who goes, you're going to lose people you love. That's how it is. And we're unprepared. And our friends are sometimes unprepared. They love us. They want to help us, but they don't know how. And so I kind of felt like, well... Let's start talking about this. So it's my way of saying we should talk about death just like we talk about other things in life. Right. And the thing that really struck me was that your metaphor about, yeah, it wasn't until I invited death into my space, like carpooling with death, like, hey, don't chase me. Just come sit right here. You're going to be with me. I'd rather you be a passenger in, in this you know vehicle. I know we're going to do it together. And that's what really struck me. I think this idea of this this concept of death is always here, but we don't talk about it. And if there's anyone there who's going through this process of knowing that maybe death is coming because they have maybe a family member or a loved one that maybe even have a diagnosis, they know it's coming, that they they still, talking about it, it's so bizarre. People don't know how to have conversations. They they inject their own beliefs, values in such a strong way. And you talk about it this in your book where mm-hmm. people who thought they're being helpful or maybe didn't even know what they were doing. To me, it seemed like you were having an out-of-body experience with some of these people who kind of showed up to say, here's my experience with death, or here's what I think you should do, or here's what you shouldn't do. What were some of the, the kind of odd things that people would do when you when people started to realize that uh, you had people dying in your, your life and they were trying to console you or help you? Oh, thank you. You know, and it's true when you say out-of-body experience. I would say I realized at some point that I was in this process, but I was also out of this process and that I was observing it. And it's like I was observing myself and my thoughts and my emotions as I was going through it. But then sometimes you feel like you are just kind of watching the people around you and what they're going through. And whether you like it or not, you begin to realize that even though like when the person closest to you, so, you know, this is not a spoiler alert that, you know, I talk about my husband dying and 
in those moments, you think that this would be a time in life where it can be about you. And it's so amazing because, you know, he was my husband and we adored each other. And so you'd think I would be the focal point since he died, but how some people really make it about themselves. And as that observer, what I began to realize, although it took time, by the way, I didn't realize this like in a finger snap overnight, was that everyone, I really believe everyone means well, but people have so much stuff that when you go through something difficult, it makes them face something difficult. And interesting things come out. And everyone has opinions about what you should or shouldn't do. And some of those opinions are helpful. And some of them are not helpful. Like the extreme would be, and so in this book, because I I come at this also as I'm, I'm a Buddhist, and I talk about Buddhism. And like with Christianity and Judaism and Islam, there are different traditions in Buddhism. One of my friends came from this tradition that had to do with what you do when someone dies. And she really came from a tradition where you don't move the body. Now, here, here I'm in the United States. What we do when someone dies is you call. And so if somebody's going through hospice, you call and you have the hospice, you know, nurse confirm and write everything up. And then you call the mortuary and they come and take your loved one away and you begin that process. So this friend of mine was like so upset that I did that. And instead of, you know, I'll say stepping back and realizing we have different traditions, that's not what I do. She was very agitated about this and not quiet about her agitation. That would be another thing too. Maybe she could have stepped back and gone, well, well, I don't think Margaret should have done that. And But she needed to tell me repeatedly. And she also needed to reach out to others because she was so upset about it that she would reach out to others and go, well, Margaret didn't you know, do this. What's going to happen? And so she talked, and I know this because people came to me and said, do you know that this is what this person is doing? And I'm like, well... I can't do anything about it. I'm I'm in the middle of taking care of my own stuff, but interesting. So I'll say that's like one of the most interesting slash odd things that occurred. Right. And the way you described it is people think because it isn't talked about that when the moment something happens, it's like their chance to like say everything they think about it, whether it's about them, about their family, the person they lost because they haven't talked about it enough about, like you said, the traditions about what you should do. Everyone has a belief about should you, what should you do with the remains? Should you have a wake? Should you have this or that? And, and, and you talk about this in your book really openly about that process of having, you know, beliefs perhaps different than some of the family or friends around you. What are the things that people typically have to deal with when they're dealing with, with death that they don't think about? Example of hospice is one, but what's another thing that people aren't thinking about that they should do to have open conversations about what the, the things that death brings? Well, you know, that's a great question. I think if you are in a situation where you are going through a terminal illness with a loved one, then it's, I think, really beneficial to acknowledge that this is what we're going through. This, it's going to end in you dying, or it's going to end in in us being apart through death. And let's talk about how we want that time to be. And what do you want? And, And that is so hard. And so I know some people don't want to, but the more you know ahead of time, the easier it is. So like I'll transition and talk about my parents for a moment. My parents, they did such a good job. Like at some point, at first when they started doing it, I I wasn't open to it. As they got older, when I would come to visit them, they would have a moment where they would sit me down and say, okay, you know, Margaret, if something, not if, but when the time comes, you know, 
we have a book. They were so organized. They had like a book of here's who you call. And it helped because we weren't in the same state. Here's who you call. Here's what we want. We have Neptune Society. Call Neptune Society. They will cremate us. They'll give us, you know, the ashes back. We want you to put us in this place, out in this bay where we used to sit and have picnics together. And, you know, although it might sound, and in some ways I, I also came to terms with maybe that my dear mother was a little bit of a control freak. <laughs> but, you know, like I don't think I noticed, I mean, I noticed that a little in life, but then I really noticed it. But you know what? It was so helpful because as it would turn out, my mom died five days before my husband died. And so can you imagine if I was trying to figure out what I was supposed to do? I would have just imploded or exploded and imploded or right. like, I just wouldn't have been able to handle it. So my dear mother had like, call this person, use this service to help clean out the house. I want this person to sing. I want this person to read the readings. I, this is so funny. I want the ladies who catered the lunch afterwards in the church hall to have cheesecake. <laughs> <laughs> it was so cute. And I never had to question, am I doing what she wants? And with Ed, my husband, we knew we didn't want to have any kind of service. And it's good that he repeated that over and over again, because people really questioned me about that, because that was really not traditional. And that really bothered people. Right. I think it's because they want to leave that, that how to mourn up mm -hmm. to the thing they're familiar with. They're like, at least I know what this is. How could you not do this? And I think that's an interesting thing. You talk about this. So you, you lost your, your dad, you lost mm -hmm. your, your mom and your husband in the same week, which in your book, you talk about it as how ironic that this is happening in this moment. And yet, you know, that's when the moments have felt like death was sort of chasing you and people started to act even differently toward you then as you had multiple people passing and dying and in that way. And people were really uncomfortable with it and, you know, started to do and act in really bizarre ways. Maybe it isn't bizarre. Maybe they're just, they don't know how to act. I don't, I mean, there's no proper way to act. I think in this book, you help people understand, look, this is a, it's life. It's a part of life. I know it's death, mm -hmm. but it is a part of the cycle of our humanity. And I think you give a real clear piece about it and, and not, not being a practicing Buddhist, it, understanding the, the Buddhist beliefs was really helpful. You sprinkle that throughout. Tell us a little mm -hmm. bit about your, your, the way in Buddhism affected your, the thinking about, you know, you losing these people so close to you in such a short period of time. Well, one of the primary teachings is that of impermanence. And so a lot of our Buddhist teachers, you know, talk about impermanence and how everything is going to change. And I mean, uh, one of the passages that, that you'll see in the book is that, you know, everything that rises ceases. And when we first start talking about that learning, we talk about simple things like, you know, don't get upset because you're stuck in traffic because eventually the traffic will go away. Or, you know, when you get sick, remember, like if you have food poisoning or the stomach flu, it's going to go away. But when we follow the teaching all the way to its natural, you know, and fullest potential, it also means I'm going away. And I mean, we see this in life, like we're born, we become little babies, we grow, we age, you know, the things we used to do when we were 18, we don't do when we're in our 50s, or <laughs> we shouldn't, or right. maybe we do them differently. That's <laughs> what it is. I don't want to be judgy, right? It depends on what we do. But, you know, certainly things change. And of course, the ultimate impermanence is you live and then you die. And so that's a very useful reminder. And then also the reminder that these things that happen to us happen to everyone and they're nothing personal. Now, of course, when you lose the people you love, it, it feels very personal because you love them. 
but there's a constant reminder of trying not to attach and cling to things. Because when I cling to something, like if I would constantly cling to, I wish Ed was still alive, I want our old life back, that causes more suffering. And that's another one of the primary teachings is in life, there is suffering. And we suffer because we attach, we cling, or we push things away, which is a the reverse of clinging aversion, right? But it's still a way of saying like, I want it to be this way. I don't want to have a cold. I want to be well. I don't want to ever be in pain. I only ever want to feel good. I don't want to lose the people I love. I want them to be here forever. Or at least can I please go first so I don't have to deal with it. And the more that we do that, the more we cause ourselves to suffer because it's not going to be that way. It's going to be how it's going to be. So if I can just accept everything that arises ceases, I don't get to control things and I should not be attached to how I want things to be. I should learn to accept what life is and how it is. I'm not going to promise you it isn't going to be hard. Like I'm never saying it wasn't difficult because I'm not an enlightened being. I'm just a regular person using my practice to help me. So it was hard, but all of these things helped so much Right. because I never had a day where I was like, why did this have to happen? I never questioned death or why it had to happen. Like I knew it was a thing that was going to happen. Right. You said you started to think that death was stalking you because mm-hmm. you felt like, you know, people were just continuing to die, but that later you learned to accept that, as you say, the Green Reaper was just doing his job and you began to accept that as, as a, he was a part of your network and you found you really started to make friends with death, which I think is a really hard concept for people to understand that you could befriend death. Tell me a little more about that, befriending death in that way. Yeah, it, it is true. And I, I do know it, it, it sounds odd, but and it really is true that one day, you know, as I was processing all this and beginning to think about this, that I really, it really did come to me driving up the freeway. I was stuck in traffic and I really, I, and I had this weird moment where I was like, well, I can get in the carpool lane because I'm not alone because I have death with me because it was at a time where it was before the deaths began, so to speak. But it was like kind of, I knew that this time in my life was coming and I was like, death is with me. And I should be able to get the benefit of being in the carpool lane and not being late to class, not right. late to the class I was teaching. But I also knew, like, should I do that? I was still going to get pulled over and get the ticket for being in the carpool lane by myself and possibly get hauled away for not being in my sound mind. But I, I guess I just began to recognize that instead of thinking, looking over my shoulder, going, oh, my God, my parents are going to die. And my, and my husband, although I feel like you know, it, he did die somewhat young. He was older than I was. So it was the logical outcome was that he was probably always going to go first, you know? And so I began to realize like, this is going to happen and you can resist and get all tense or you can just get yourself as ready as possible. And so I think I came to a place where I realized like, here's death and he's here and I'm going to be at a certain point of readiness. I'm still going to be sad. I'm still going to miss everyone, but I can get to a place of at least knowing because I guess I would see so many people be surprised. Why did this happen? And I I do have a friend who constantly will say, why did this have to happen? And I'm like, this is a basic life thing. You all living creatures die only in the movies. Do we have immortality? Right. Then it's actually really horrific, (laughs) you know? Right. And I think you, you talk about it in such a way that even on the cover of your book, having the Grim Reaper in the the carpooling seat, you know, sitting next to the driver is really stark. I think it's, I, I love the the way that, that you had this illustrated because it made it feel like it's true, but it shouldn't be terrifying. It just is. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, the begging the question why doesn't make it not a part of life, right? So you, mm-hmm. I think you do a really lovely job of helping people understand to acknowledge death is what it is, to discover how to build these like happy moments in your life for as you face death and to, to fold in nicely your, your belief around Buddhism without it being, it's not a religious text, I would say, as I read, read the Mm-mm. book. It's not about that at all. Actually, it's about you and your discoveries and you're trying to help because so many people don't know what to expect when their friends really, I would say act out. If I were to pick a word, they start to mm-hmm. act in a way that even you're like questioning friendships. You have to actually reevaluate friendships because they start to behave in ways that, Hey, when your husband was alive, he wasn't acting this way, but now you are. So maybe this has shifted for us. Tell us about that when you have to let go of those things. What is it? What did that present to you? Well, it, it is true. Uh, one of the things that it presented to me is that at first, you know, so at first, you know, like I was just tired and overwhelmed and, you know, and then I think part of me felt, not part of me, I felt annoyed. And so then in my, you know, Buddhism, I had to practice like, why do you feel annoyed? You feel annoyed because you wanted people to rise up and be supportive in a different way. And I felt resentful where if somebody who I felt was a close, you know, part of my close circle, and if somebody who like referred to themselves as being part of my close circle, then I realized that in my mind, that meant something different than it meant in their mind. So like in my mind, it meant if you call yourself one of my inner circle, that you're there no questions asked when I go through a hard time. But what I really realized was that it wasn't that they didn't feel like they were part of my inner circle. It's that they as human beings still had their own boundaries. And so I began to realize that some people just couldn't. But I will say that I went through a period of resentment for quite some time, not because, and I'm thinking of a couple of specific people, not because they weren't helpful, but because I felt like they could have been more helpful or helpful in a different way. And so through, so for me, so as a Buddhist, through my process of meditation, I had to really consider big picture in my life. Is this a person I'm willing to let go of? Now, there are some people who I absolutely did minimize my time with, and that did result in me letting go of them. Because I think when you go through a difficult thing in life, a loss of someone you love, a difficult illness, it's really a reminder that we should be so picky about our relationships anyway. Mm, we, good point. Sh- we, sh- we should be so picky about who we surround ourselves with. And so there were some people who I realized that it would be good to let them go because in this situation, they were causing me or I was allowing the situation to cause more of an expenditure of energy than I had. And so, yeah, it, it definitely led to some reevaluations. And with a couple of people, they're still part of my life because I realized that they love me. I love them. They weren't able to step up in the way in which I wanted them to. It would have been nicer. Also, again, going back to suffering and attachment and, you know, impermanence, maybe my expectations were too high. And one day I was able to get to a place where I would meditate on sending compassion to them because understanding that if this is a person who really does love me and they're not able to rise to the occasion, it is because of a block and a difficulty they have in their life. And so now I could be coming from a place of more of compassion of how difficult this is also for them. Right. That's a difficult place to arrive to after suffering so many losses. and. I would definitely say this is not typical for someone to lose so many people in a short period of time, though it could happen to others. It could even happen in more tragic ways. But 
that your view of it is taking a step to look at it and, and to talk about it, not to mm-hmm. avoid it, not to think that it's going to be avoidable or that it's, it's something wrong because death is coming. There's nothing wrong, which I thought was a beautiful principle. Let's talk about the book writing process. Cause I know I get, I get to be, I have a behind the scenes view, but mm-hmm. people listening don't, you know, this isn't your area where you're spending your time talking about uh, death and, and grieving. Your other work is totally different than this. So what, why a book? <laughs> <laughs> and what was your choice in writing it? Why did you want to write it? That's a great question. There's a part of me that has always, I've enjoyed writing and there was part of me and, you know, so I'll just quickly say for our listeners. So in my other life, I actually, I have been a person who teaches project management. And so my, my other professional life is about project management and helping people be project managers, which is, you know, very much about planning and organization and and things like that. And so I've always wanted to write a book and I felt like in the topic where I am active in teaching, I didn't feel like I, I've never felt like I had anything super new to say. And so, you know, there was this thought of, I've always wanted to write a book. And then when I started, you know, seeing things and going through this situation, I was like, that's the thing for me to write about, because it's something that I could really, you know, immerse myself in that I felt really strongly about, and that I felt like I could work to bring a message. And not that the message is 100% new, but to try to bring a different angle and perspective, it would be like this book would be what I would say if like somebody close to me was going through this, a lot of the stories and things I say in there or what I would want to share with someone. And so it became obvious to me at some point, like this is the book. This is what you're meant to write. You don't need to write about things in the other world where you've been as a professional. There's enough stuff there. This is the thing. And and so it kind of was like a intuitive thing that just came up for me. Right. I mean, it, and it, it definitely is a different to write about your own personal life, your own experience opposed to you know, more technical or more information-based writing. So that was great. So what what surprised you about the process? This is going to sound funny, but not. Okay. So because sometimes like I work in this world of planning and scheduling and some things are kind of linear and thank goodness that I didn't use that was that you don't, this is going to sound to existing authors. They're going to be like, yeah, of course. But to someone like me, I really thought that like you had to sit down and figure out your table of contents and then write section by section, like chapter one, then chapter two, then chapter three. And so what I'm so appreciative of is where, you know, you were so helpful with showing the creativity that's in the process. And before I started, like before I started officially writing, I had started writing, but to step back and do some mind mapping and just step back and go, don't write, just think about what is the central message and then divide it up. And then every day, write but right on the topic that grabs you that day, that was so refreshing and so freeing. Because if I had sat down every day and done things in a linear way, like today is chapter one, it wouldn't have gone as well. Because if I didn't have chapter one in me that day, I probably still would have written chapter one, but it wouldn't have been as good because I would have just been like, you have to write in order. So today you have to write this. So when you gave me permission to write what made sense to write that day, it made it so joyful. Well, that's good to hear. That's definitely what I believe. I think people should write what was what's in them for that day. And I think, I mean, my observation was that it was really hard for you at first because you are, you not only are a very good project manager, 
you teach it and it's very structured. It's very clear. Like this is a path. And this book, I was like, let's flip it upside down and we'll figure it out afterwards. Mm-hmm. And I think that was like, oh my gosh, what are you talking about? And yet you trusted the process and allowed these, because there were some really heartfelt, touching moments you had to write about that you hadn't sat down to write about in this way. And mm-hmm. you, need, you needed space to do it. And some days it wasn't going to be as easy as other ones. So I knew that if we could just allow it to be what needed to be for you, then you were growing into a new space as, as a writer yourself. Oh, it's so true. And so if I had like, on one day, if I had written a really, you know, part that was emotional and the tears were flowing, maybe the next day I didn't have that strength, but I still wanted to write. So maybe that next day I was like, okay, here's something that's easier and more fun for me to write about today. And so I loved that because it was able, it allowed me to keep writing. And I really treasured those days of writing, of, you know, getting, and everyone's process is different, but, you know, getting up and getting that cup of coffee and saying, I'm going to write for, you know, however long, either a certain number of words or a certain number of hours, and then I'm going to look at everything else. Oh my gosh, that was so nice. I loved it. Yeah, that's great. What was the most challenging part of the book writing process then? Uh, let's see. Some days I felt like I couldn't hit a certain word count. And at first that was challenging for me because I'm a very goal-driven person. So I had to learn to just let it go and trust that you're going to get there. I think self-doubt. So wanting to write, but not having ever done anything, you know, other than a blog and a few articles here and there, self-doubt and the inner critic would come up and be like, no one wants to talk about death, Margaret. No one wants to read this. You're being self-absorbed and narcissistic by telling your story. That was a big one that came up a lot. And I think if I hadn't been part, and that's why left to my own devices, it wouldn't have happened truly. Yeah. No, that what you describe is a lot of what people experience. Uh, sometimes it's easy to think of being a content expert versus being just human. <laughs> and our humanity is fragile. I mean, I wish to say it would be easy to say, oh, it's okay. I'll write this. Who cares what people think? Mm, that's a lot easier said than done because, yeah, our inner critic shows up and says, who are you? Yeah. Why would this matter? No one cares. And I think that that's a challenging part about just showing up in general. What was the most exciting part? Like the part that you were in the process that you're like, yeah, this, this feels good. Let's see. One of the most exciting parts was when it was time to compile the manuscript because pulling all the different bits and pieces together and organizing it for editing, that was when it was like, it became even more real. And so I was like, Hey, this stuff, this is a book. This is coming together as a book. So that was, that was certainly exciting. Um, seeing the book cover was like, oh, right. This, this is real. Like I can picture this getting an actual copy and holding it in my hands. Yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh, I have a book. I did it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so very exciting, very exciting and fun. And, and it's good that these things I think happen along the way because I think they keep you motivated, you know? Yeah. And it's part of the reason why I try to get coverage done early because people are like, oh, wait, this is going to really happen. This is not like you're going to wake up and go, oh, just kidding. Because it kind of feels that way sometimes. Like, this is not really going to be a book, is it? Yeah. And I think everybody has those days. I bet everyone has those days. I had those days where it's like, I don't know. Is it really going to come together? Even if I do, you know, I sound like Eeyore. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, and it's beautiful. I mean, honestly, I mean, I'm working on lots of books obviously, but like it's artwork. I was so blown away by how it all came out. looks great. 
you did a, a beautiful job of the writing, which, you know, there's lots, there's lots to a book. I don't think people realize there's so many small details that you're not thinking about when you're writing, which thank goodness. Cause if you did, you would probably not finish, mm-hmm. but you know, from the bios and descriptions and interior parts and this and that, there's so many parts you realize a book is a, is a long journey, but uh, it's mm-hmm. so inspiring to see it. If people wanted to pick up your book and, and were like wanting to pass it to a friend, what would they, what would you say to them? Why, why would I get this book and who could it help? Okay. First of all, I would say if you have someone who is going through a terminal illness, then this book would help because there are definitely sections that talk about, you know, cause I went through, we went through a terminal illness with dad. I went through a terminal illness with Ed. And so I think there are things in there that can help you get ready and go through that journey. I would also say, if you know someone who has gone through a loss, that it's helpful because there's just days when stuff happens and you're just going to be like, is that normal? And your experience is not going to be exactly like my experience. You know, so for example, like if you're not Buddhist and you don't have a friend who has strong feelings about keeping a body untouched for a couple of days, like that's not going to resonate for you. But maybe one of your friends who has a fit because you chose cremation and their group doesn't believe in cremation, you know, so just to have someone you can read and go, well, so that, that weird thing happened to Margaret. And so this weird thing is happening to me. And I understand that this is the part of the process of dealing with dying. And then I would say the third reason would be if you are at a point in your life where you're dancing around the concept of death and you're a little afraid of it, then I feel like I'm saying like, I'm opening my front door. Please come in the house, sit down, have a cup of coffee or tea. And this is your ability to observe the process of death so that you can start wrapping your head around it and your heart around it. That's a beautiful thing. I think if anybody's in it right now, this would be a perfect book. But also, don't be afraid to have a book and start preparing yourself, understanding that death is part of life. It's it's actually one of the most beautiful parts of life because we realize our impermanence, as you mentioned, is a part of who we are. We're, we're human. We're meant to be beautiful uh, for the time we have. I'm so grateful for the the honesty of this book grateful that you decided to show up on the page. And I know that because the feelings when you read this book are so, so powerful and yet so inspiring. I appreciate you. Uh, If people want to learn more about you and find and connect with you, where would you have them go? Okay. So I would say go, if you would go to margaretmaloney.com forward slash carpooling with death. And then also you can find the book on Amazon. So I would say if you would go to Amazon and look for Carpooling with Death, then you can get Kindle, the paperback, soon the, the hard copy. And those would be the two places I would say. And then uh, you can always email, email me directly, margaret at margaretmaloney.com. I'm always happy to hear from people. That's great. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so proud of you. It's such an amazing book. For those of you listening, please Go to Amazon, buy the book, Carpooling with Death, How Living with Death Will Make You Stronger, Wiser, and Fearless. Thank you, Margaret, for being here. Thank you. And thank you for being the catalyst to get me to get this out there. I really appreciate your help. Thank you. It was an honor. Join me again for another interview for great authors who talk about their story, how they got there, and why they feel like they're born to write. Please subscribe to this podcast, leave an honest review, and you can always find me at Coach Azul dot com.